Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Dr. Casey Patrick here, and today I'm going to take a little bit of a different seat as opposed to usual. I'm uh, running the board today uh, in lieu of uh, Andy Adams, my, my guru. So if there are sound quality issues, you can freely blame it on me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back today as I am not a tactical EMS expert by any means, way, shape, or form. But I do have a couple of experts here that I think you guys will really enjoy hearing from. First, from MCHD, we have Patrick Langan, who is our tactical chief. Patrick, thanks yeah. for joining us. Thank you, Doc. And on the other side of the table, we have Dr. Kevin Schultz, who is assistant medical director for HFD and tactical physician for them as well. Kevin, thanks for joining us again. Well, thanks for having me back. And I'm going to let Kevin and Patrick toss back some of the current uh, hot questions in tactical EMS and uh, kind of let them pick each other's brains for your guys' benefit. So take it away, Patrick. All right. Thanks again, Doc. I guess moving into the, we, we start with some of the, the easier questions, uh, looking at a tactical team and how you see those uh, structured. I know you guys have your docs down there, but looking at a, like a national standard, how do you guys see that? How do you see that structure? Well, part, part of the problem with setting a national standard for a tactical team is that, you know, EMS across the nation is so different. The TAC teams typically are set up differently. The relationship between the governmental agencies are set up differently. Um, you know, there's lots of there's lots of options. There's a lot of teams around, like our team with HPD uh, SWAT that uses uh, physicians. There's teams that use a uh, use medics from either the fire department or from a, a third service right. uh, EMS agency. And there's some uh, teams that have their own integrated, and the only medical in, uh, incorporated they have is within their police department, their own integrated medics. Um, so there's there's lots of different models that you can utilize, and and not to say that any is more effective or less effective. They each have their pros and cons uh, in, in terms of, of how, a, uh, how the model's gonna operate with the team. Right. I think one of the biggest pieces that goes with that though is whatever the model is, is that it does need to be something that's integrated and bought into by both the tactical team on the police side and the law enforcement side, as well as on the EMS and medical provider side because we can set up whatever team we want within the, within the EMS agency if law enforcement is not buying in, then things aren't going to work out very well. Okay, good point. Uh, can, can you kind of allude to that, maybe some pointers on how to get that buy-in from police departments and administration? Sure, and I, I think that the, uh, the biggest thing on, on that piece is really just to uh, kind of, it's like anything else, right? You need to prove to them the need or, or kind of let them discover the need. And, you know, hopefully that doesn't take an injury or, or worse in, a, in the setting of a tactical uh, of a tactical event, um, when you look at the data, there's you know something like I don't, I'm trying to remember the numbers exactly. There's something like you know 18 injury law enforcement injuries per thousand uh, tactical deployment hours. Right. There's multiple casual casualties on the civilian side, suspect side. So there's multiple reasons why having a tactical medical team is, is important. Now, one of the big problems nowadays across the country is that breaking down those silos between public safety agencies, um, you know, getting if they're separate fire and EMS to work together, getting law enforcement to work together with with a fire or fire EMS agency. Um, and so kind of breaking down those those uh, silos, breaking down those walls. 
which is something that we see are starting to see around the country with kind of an active shooter response. And I think that actually can be that kind of toe in the door. Uh, people are realizing the need um, after events like the Pulse nightclub in Las Vegas and, you know, the Mercy, just recently the Mercy Hospital in Chicago, um, the incidents where people are seeing the need for the active shooter response. And that first step of training is a great way to start that dialogue to then build into a more robust tactical team uh, working integrated with law enforcement. Okay, that's a good point. So something we did here recently is with our, our active shooter training where we did that awareness level. Um, and that kind of ties into my, my next question is uh, the, the initial training and then ongoing training for the tactical medics. So we did that awareness level for the entire service, uh, kind of like a, a TCC, uh, you know, the, it's like your foot in the door, understanding how that scene would work. Uh, for the TAC medics, we do the, the whole TECC plus uh, like an in-house uh, TEMS program, like a five to eight day class like you'd normally see out in public. Uh, where, where do you see that initial training and then ongoing training? Well, I think what you guys have set up is, is a great way to put it together, right? Because first of all, you can't have a TEMS team, um, a tactical team within an EMS agency completely in a void without an awareness level to everybody because the first people on scene Heck, in a lot of these situations, the first people on scene is going to be EMS before law enforcement even gets there. So understanding right. how those scenes work, understanding how, you know, how that response is going to go, plus including things like that active threat response, active shooter style response, um, because, you know, your tactical team may or may not be available at that time. Um, I think kind of continuing education with the tactical team and, and, and one po important part about running a tactical team from a training standpoint is going to be that there's really there's two different aspects to your training right you certainly have to train um the medicine right with obviously a heavy focus on on uh the trauma care right. and mm -hmm. care for you know specifically ballistic wounds but all kinds of trauma care um but the other side is training with the tactical team because it goes kind of go back to if you don't have that buy if you're not training if they're not comfortable with you and i can i can speak uh from my own experiences with hpd swat you know, I've, I've been with the team there for almost six years now, and it took a while before, you know, they weren't constantly, you know, kind of keeping a hand on my shoulder and, and guiding me around. And it wasn't so much that, you know, and I appreciated it very much, don't get me wrong, right. but if you're not training with them, um, especially if you don't do a ton of operations, if you're not training with them, you know, it actually can create a liability from a safety standpoint for both your guys as well as for the law enforcement who are kind of the part of their job is going to be to protect their their tactical medics in, in that role so i think the the twofold training the last piece to throw in there is is you know looking at tecc and tccc and, and all these courses one thing that's kind of i won't say left out but it's not as emphasized is the fact that in a lot of these cases, right, we go into these tactical scenes and, you know, as, as a tactical medic yourself, right, we go in with what, what you got on your vest, what you got on your back, right, what you can carry. Um, of the last three or four patients I've worked on tactical scenes, uh, about half of them have been trauma, about half of them have been medical, right? right. Mm -hmm. TECC and, and TCCC are the, you know, young, healthy, you know, military age male who gets shot or gets blown up. Right, doesn't count the you know 89 year old grandma in the front room when they hit the front door and now she's having chest pain. Exactly. Right, or the little kid that's in the in the room. There's you know some 
extremely unfortunate anecdotes from several years ago now about um, a team elsewhere that, you know, flashbang through a window, landed in a crib with a kid, right? right? Some, you know, which I, most law enforcement agencies now, are, you know, that's kind of the one that's ringing in their mind when they talk about things like explosives and distraction devices. Um, but there's just that other component in the civilian setting that we got to be ready for as well. But, you know, so training up on that and using your, you know, using uh, your guys who are kind of your general line medics and adding additional training is a great way to do it because that way you'll have that regular experience. Oh, I've got, okay, I've got an 89 year old chest pain. I know how to do that. Right. That's their, their normal day to day. Uh, now we're adding in that tactical component. That's a, that's a good point. Um, so you mentioned that there's not, it's a hard, uh, hard way to come up with a national standard. Um, if we look at more of a, or even a regional, there's not really a set way that teams are set up or tra- training. I mean, you can go to uh, a tactical medic program that's between three and eight days, and there's no telling what you're going to get in that time frame. Um, how do how do you guys uh, or how do you what do you see that that being so ongoing? I mean, we we got the basic stuff. We got the tech. We got the T Triple C. Uh, you're even throwing in that that general practitioner type stuff. But how do you move forward with with ongoing training to improve? Well, I think that. You know, the two big ways to kind of come up with it, number one is just to look at things that have happened, right? Right. When you look at experiences, you look at situations people have been in, um, you know, I, I was recently on a scene where we had a gunshot wound and an excited delirium or a likely excited delirium that went into cardiac arrest, right? So two completely different, both things that aren't beyond the expect, you know, the possibility of happening, but, you know, tying them into the same scene became a kind of threw us all for a loop and we had to kind of transition quickly. So I think one, one area to do is just to look at experiences, look at experiences nationwide, you know, share experiences with other teams around the country. Um, you know, kind of what have you guys had and, and really the, the best one is going to be scenario training and, and the best scenario training is going to be integrating again, integrating with law enforcement. Right. Um, the closer you can, the more training you can do kind of in conjunction with, right. The, with the law enforcement agency that you're working with, the better you're gonna, the better you're gonna come off, right? Because you can do the training, and you know your guys up here. I know, you know, I, I know a lot of your medics, and you guys are great, and you guys have, you know, I, I have no concerns about the actual skill level, right? Um, you know, and it's gonna be the matter of of that quick thinking, that decision making, you know, in that setting, and how does your decision? Because your decision making as a as a medic you know, doesn't necessarily jive with your decision-making as somebody who's in a environment where there's potential to get shot at. Right, exactly. Right, and those things, you know, playing off those things, you know, there's things that when you go and train, when you've got your law enforcement colleagues there, they'll see things and go, you know, you should probably put that laryngoscope away because that's a light and it's dark out here and things like that that we may not think about, you know, when we don't have quite the... um, you know, as on the, on the medical side, right, we generally don't have, you know, even experienced people like yourself and, and I, you know, in, in tactical EMS don't have that experience that, you know, say that longtime SWAT commander right, exactly. would have. Mm-hmm. So bringing them into the picture is a big uh, positive. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm going to interject here and try not to sound, try to sound uh, too dumb, but from the ongoing training standpoint, the importance of integrating law enforcement is to get their scene awareness, um, knowledge, right? Cause they can continue to bring the difficulties from different scenes in your own service back to you. 
But from the from the medicine side, I see the ongoing. Just I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, we learn EKG skills. We learn, uh, you know, recognizing uh, ischemia infarction. Uh, you learn the patterns. But how do you how do you learn ECGs? How do you learn uh, cardiac care in an ongoing fashion? Well, you have dialogue back and forth with your emergency department, right? You have dialogue back and forth with your cardiology. Uh, consultants and you, you know, you get the report back the next day that the RCA was uh, 99% included and they got a, they got a stint, right? So you go back and look at that EKG, you think about the patient, you look at the ECG pattern and you learn from a case-based scenario-based, um, uh, you know, foundation. And I think the same thing holds true for tactical training, right? Our, um, our, our, you know, tactical responses in Montgomery County are going to be probably different from what you know from what kevin has uh down in houston right? right and so what versus what someone would have you know in a in a extremely rural environment uh you know urban suburban uh, i think so i think you have to take your own cases and learn from those i think that's exactly what what kevin was stressing but try to take it back to a more medicine-based uh analogy like we, we learn from our cases right we learn from talking with our hospitals and talking with our consultants same thing with our you know, our surgery uh, trauma uh, conference that we have here at MCHD, we get a lot of these cases come back back to us from that. So, yeah. And, and I think kind of it also leads into another point in terms of that exchange of information is that and I'm going to brag on, on one of our guys a little bit. One of our, our SWAT operators is, you know, all, all tactical operators on the law enforcement side are going to get some form of a self-aid buddy aid, you know, in, right. in a, in a team building manner, it's great for if your tactical medical team are the ones teaching that course, that's exactly. in, in that way it's positive. But, you know, we had an incident not that long ago where there was a, uh, there was a shooting. It wasn't a tactical team involvement. They were actually down the street running a warrant and they were just clearing when this, uh, officer involved shooting happened and a suspect was shot and, he was the first one on scene. He's one of our team leaders on the on the SWAT team. He's not a medical at all. He's no medical training other than kind of the first first aid buddy aid stuff. He jumped out. He took a look at the patient and slapped two chest seals on the through and through chest wound, and just kind of rolled right into it. And you know, obviously, you know, we kind of one of our docs was close and and got there soon thereafter. But the other side of, of kind of the integration on the tactical team is, is that integration and that exchange of information back and forth, right? Not only are you going to training with them so you learn tactics, but you're going to train with them so they learn that little bit of medicine because we yeah. don't always have a TAC medic in the perfect place at the perfect time. You know, these guys care, these guys run with a medical kit in general um, and, and kind of being confident with that. But, you know, just like most new TAC medics walk into the tactical environment and they're kind of looking around with that deer, little bit of a deer in the headlights kind of feel just because it's new. It's not what we do every day. Exactly. You know, it, you, you put somebody bleeding in front of one of these law enforcement operators, they have very similar experience in a lot of cases. So that, that give and take training is going to benefit everybody involved. So I think that exchange of information that you bring up case is a really good point. Yeah, excellent. So that kind of gives me a little segue on something uh, as far as procedures. So you, you give your uh, law enforcement, they have uh, some kind of IFAC or something they're carrying. Um, when you look in your perspective, you, you're unique in that you're a doc and you can you can do kind of, you know, whatever you really want to do. But when you look back at the, the paramedics and the, the EMTs and stuff on the teams, um, do you look at uh, doing any like advanced procedures or is there extra equipment they use or carry? So I think that, I mean, it's just like when you're looking at any EMS agency, you're going to look at, um, you know, kind of the skill 
level of your, you know, the base skill of what your, who your providers are, right? right? Obviously coming in as a physician, I have a little bit of a different skill base than a medic would coming in. Um, some of our other physicians may or may not have, and I, and I work in the trauma centers and I do a lot of trauma on a regular basis. Some of our other docs may not have as much and may need some kind of other training in those areas. Um, as far as medics and EMTs, um, and it really just depends on kind of where you, you foresee, um, and this is largely a medical direction decision, but certainly a, an administrative decision as well, where you foresee those um, providers kind of where their level falls out. There's certainly things if you follow like a true TCCC model where your airway options are nasal pharyngeal airway, cricothorotomy, right? right. That, that, that's the progression, right? <laughs> With the, the TECC model, the more civilianized model, there kind of is some ad- intermediary steps because we are talking more of a civilian setting, which is more of what most of us experience. We're not in exactly. Afghanistan. Right. Um, but that being said, you know, is cricothorotomy an option, right? Is it something you already do in a service, right? If you have medics who are already trained in surgical airway capability, then it's not a huge step to say, hey, part of your TCCC loadout or part of your TEMS loadout is surgical airway, and it's going to be maybe a little more aggressively used in that setting than you would in your regular operational setting. Exactly. If you don't, so, you know, for example, um, you know, a lot of agencies don't do surgical airway. And so if you don't have that capability in your agency, then it becomes a training a maintenance of training, maintenance of credentialing from the medical direction side, um, whether you, you're comfortable with that with those providers. Um, I think surgical airway, uh, you know, from a advanced procedure standpoint, I think the big ones from a trauma perspective that you really need to consider are those big TECC or TCCC procedures, um, surgical airway, uh, needle decompression, and or finger thoracostomy for, you know, de- some way to decompress the chest. Right. Um, potentially wound packing if that's not a um, a standard within the EMS agency. Um, I don't think anybody's not using, you know, kind of a, a, a tourniquet of some kind, some kind of commercially available tourniquets. Uh, tourniquets, ten, five years ago, I would have said tourniquets are a new thing too. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, now we can, I think, a pretty universal use of tourniquets in EMS um, and in law enforcement, um, things like chest seals, um, which may or may not be ubiquitous within an EMS agency. So there's certainly some things that kind of need to be kind of incorporated. And so um, one thing that we've done with the HPD SWAT team, because we do have our three physicians uh, who, who cover that, we have now six of the SWAT operators have been trained uh, to the EMT level. So they are state certified EMTs. They're police officers first, they're SWAT operators first, they are EMTs, but then we've taken them. And again, one of the beauties of being a medical director in Texas is we can, as long as we train them and credential them to do it, they can do pretty much anything we ask them to. Right. Um, so they've been given essentially those TCCC skills of wound packing, needle decompression, and surgical airway. But it becomes, you know, kind of a balancing act, right? I've got guys who don't do medicine on a regular basis. They don't do patient care at all on a regular basis, right? Their job right. is to be a police officer. And so how do we maintain that level of certification, that level of credentialing and comfort with some of these more advanced and invasive procedures um, that, you know, general your general emergency medical technician on the street, you know, on a basic unit, can't do any of that. Right. Right. And those, that's kind of that balancing act that comes into play. And largely it's going to also depend on what is your, what's your next level of medical care, right? If you're going to go out, you know, deep into the, you know, kind of deep into the County somewhere where the only medical care for, you know, until you get, until you launch the helicopter is going to be your TAC medic, you're going to need to have a much 
more robust set of protocols. You start talking about, you know, some other medications, potentially um, other pain meds, potentially antibiotics for wounds, potentially there's lots of variation. Whereas if you're someone like me working operationally, primarily in a major urban setting where I'm 20 to 30 minutes from a hospital, just about anywhere I go. Right. Right. And I've, and our part of our protocol is to put a box, an ALS box or a box and an ALS provider, you know, as close as safely possible two, three blocks out. You know, I don't I know I have that backup that I don't necessarily need to have quite as robust a loadout as, you know, say you guys might going into the northern parts of the county. Okay, good point. Um, something else, uh, you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier um, about that, uh, that transition of you just, you just got on the team or they just kind of got to know you, law enforcement and everything. So how do, how do you integrate um, you into the team or vice versa? How do you, how do you assist that? So I got lucky when I joined our team, uh, we'd had uh, medical personnel integrated for two or three years and hearing the stories from the guy who started our integration program, um, it was not nearly as smooth as, uh, as it is today <laughs> when they started. Um, it takes time. It takes, you know, it takes buy-in. I think one of the, it's just like anything else, right? If, if you're going to work operationally with any, with another agency, right? Public safety, we're all really good at what we do, right? We may not be so good at what they do, exactly, right? And yeah. vice versa, getting people to understand that and, and being willing to compromise, right? Showing up, you know, one of the biggest problems I've seen kind of universally with tactical medical providers is we have people sometimes with a lot of experience, sometimes with minimal experience, but they kind of show up and say, well, this is how we, we are going to provide TEMS to your unit. And that's not going to fly very well <laughs> right. with most law enforcement agencies, you know, who, especially when you get into a tactical team where, and, and I don't, you know, some tactical teams are part-time, some are full-time, depending on how you work through it. You know, HPD SWAT has a large full-time team, right. you know, busy tier one SWAT team. Um, but depending on how you how you integrate them, um, you don't show up and dictate tactics to a tactical team, right? It's, it's exactly. what they do, right? And so how you operate, you know, and that kind of walking in, going, okay, what can I bring to the table? How can I help you? And recognizing that your goal may be a full integration, your goal may be, you know, geared up, back of the stack, you know, stop hold at the door while they make entry, whatever the goal of of kind of development of your unit may be. Um, recognizing that on day one, that's probably not where you're going to be and being accepting of that fact that you're going to have to kind of work up to those progressions and whatnot. I know when I started with, with HPD six years ago, um, or almost six years ago, we were about three years into the program and there was kind of a, a level of comfort with, with the medical personnel. Right. And over the last six years, I, I, I've seen that level level of comfort increase significantly and I'm, you know, they integrate us differently into their operations than they did when I started. Exactly. Um, and that's just presence. It's being there, um, being involved, showing up, saying, well, you know, you know, when they run scenarios, even when we're not involved in training and scenarios, if one of us can be there, we will. And we'll stand there and go. So what, what would happen right here if, if he went down? Right. What would be what would be our plan? Kind of throw throw curveballs at him from the medical side. Right. And just that kind of piece really helps bridge that gap um, and, you know, make it make it about them. Make it about, you know, at the end of the day, you know, tactical, a tactical medical program is generally set up for anyone involved in the scene. Right. That being said, you know, not to say that 
your officers don't want, you know, feel the same way mm-hmm. at the same time. You know, I'm repeatedly telling guys, Hey, I'm here for you guys. If something happens to one of y'all, you know, I'm here for everybody. Right. But, and they feel an awful lot better knowing that you're standing there, you know, in the armored vehicle or around the next corner, you know, a lot closer than that box that's down the street. And it's, you know, they may know you guys who are in the box. They may not know them. Right. Exactly, but yeah. they certainly know you and your face shows up and they're like, Oh, doc's here. Got it. Yeah. We, we've experienced that. So we're, we're a little over two years into this, our new version of the program. We had a, a program, you know, 10 years ago and, and we, we struggled with that at first. And then when we have new guys come on, we take them to training and they're like, Oh, what am I going to do? And it's like, well, you're, you're going to go stand over there until they, they get to know you and, and we'll integrate you as they feel comfortable. So we have experienced that. We're, that's a learning curve for us and especially for our new guys. Um, uh, where, where are you guys as docs? Where do you guys are, are, are you guys in the stack or do you guys uh, have a, a vehicle or what do you guys do? So generally uh, we're going to respond independently. We're on, on the same paging system with, with the team. So when okay. they get a team, when they get a page um, for an active call out, we get the same page and we'll, we'll get in route one, at least one of us will try and get in route and respond. Um, as far as warrant service is up to them whether they decide to you know to call us or not they call us fairly regularly for any of the higher risk stuff that they do from a warrant standpoint um and where we are in in the operation really just depends on you know a a joint assessment of the risk and the need right if they're not super concerned about risk um on a particular warrant for example you know we may be in our own vehicle um we have Tahoe's, you know, city issue Tahoe's, and we may be in our own vehicle trailing kind of the caravan in and we'll hold at the corner while they may go move up and make entry. If it's a higher risk incident, um, if they're more concerned about, about kind of the outcomes or that there may be uh, potential for violence uh, in some of the scenes higher than normal, um, they may kind of tuck us up a little closer. We've, we've done operations from the raid van where we're in the van with them. Um, We've done operations, you know, pretty regularly if we have the uh, if we have the, uh, the armored vehicles on site, we'll t- often work out of there. Um, rarely. So we're not law enforcement. We're not police. We're not armed. We're not, we're armored right. with them, but we're not armed. So it is rare that they'll, you know, kind of bring us in stack into an objective. Uh, it has happened. Um, but generally it's a, we, we see, you know, I see someone on the ground through the window right. and we're going to go take that room doc, check him, you know, and either evac him or leave him if that's appropriate. And you, you know, either way you're in, in and out to assess. Um, but that's the, I can count on one hand the number of times we've done that. That's just more, a much more rare case where, because we're not law enforcement, we tend to be at that last point of last cover and concealment. Right. Um, is, is usually where we'll end up, but they, they like to have us close. It, it makes them feel Definitely. good having us, yeah. having us pretty close. So you, you kind of stole my, my last question there I had, and that's the it's the million dollar question every every tac medic wants to know: should you be armed or not? I mean, you kind of kind of already alluded to that. Do you guys, with not being armed, do you guys uh, that your team's comfortable with you already, so they work you in it? But what are some some pointers on do so, or not? So I mean that that you're right. That's the million dollar question, right. right? And there's a lot of there's a lot of debate about that around the country. Um, and it's really, there's twofold. It's the armed, not armed, and it's the law enforcement, not law enforcement. Exactly. Right. Now, obviously, if you're going to be a law enforcement sworn reserve deputy or whatever it is, then kind of being armed goes hand in hand. And that's now there's, in my opinion, there's pluses and minuses there. Right. 
certainly, you know, everybody, you know, we're in Texas. Uh, everybody wants to be able to defend themselves. And I understand, I, I can appreciate that feeling. Um, and so, you know, my bigger, my bigger debate is more on the law enforcement versus not, because one of the problems, especially if you're dealing with a smaller, uh, smaller tactical team, if you're a sworn officer and they say cover that door, right? The guy next to you could get shot and fall against your legs. You, you've now got a role confusion. Exactly. Kind of where you have to decide, do I come off of my law enforcement assignment to do my medical assignment or not, right? As a doc, as a non-sworn officer, I'm, I'm not, not a sworn officer, I don't have that debate. My job is to show up and be a doctor, exactly. right? That's what yeah. I do, right? And that's that, that role confusion, you know, now, can it work with sworn officers? Absolutely. There just has to be an understanding on from the command level all the way down the tactical side that, you know, this person's primary role is medical or if they have another primary role that we're going to rapidly try and transition them to a medical role in the event they're needed. Mm -hmm. um, armed, not armed, usually uh, you're going to have, you know, when you, when you have that true integration with the teams, you know, you're going to have that's that's a fight you got to fight up both sides because you're going to have to fight it up on certainly on the police side for them to be comfortable bringing into a volatile scene someone who's not a law enforcement officer with a weapon. Exactly. You've also got to fight. That's another fight. You've also got to fight on your EMS agency side. Right. Right. Because most EMS agencies are not particularly comfortable with saying, yeah, you guys carry a gun. No problem. Yeah. So those are the other sides that, you know, it's a, it's a big question. And there's, I won't say there's a right answer. Every agency's got to figure that one out for themselves as a joint with their law enforcement agency. Yeah, we, I mean, our, our last tactical uh, podcast with, with Dan O'Donnell from, from Indianapolis, uh, I was surprised that he had moved towards uh, arming their team. But his point was more from not from an offensive standpoint, but from a defensive standpoint, basically being parked back on the corner, team moves in, and, and you're on an island, and you're by yourself. Exactly. And he had, and yeah. he had, he had spoken. Going back to speaking to specifics, you know, and and um, experiences that you have in your own in your own service with your own crews, they had, you know, bad yeah. actors behind their door when their when their team was, mm -hmm. you know, 200, 200, 400 yards away. And so he moved his team that direction, basically from from a defensive standpoint. And key requirement was adequate training to. Yeah to use those, you know, use the firearms in a, you know, from a defensive perspective. Yeah, exactly. I, I won't say I've never been in a situation where I might've been a little more comfortable had I had a, a firearm, um, <laughs> uh, on me at the time. Um, our guys do a phenomenal job of keeping us safe, but there are just some scenes where, you know, we're, you know, we had two officers shot in Southwest Houston and the, the SWAT team responded as part of kind of the search for the, the actors. And I mean, we, we were clearing a neighborhood. So what's safe, what's not, right? Where where can you be that you're not, you know? So it became right. a very, you know, they're not going to build a ring around you and run around, you know? So it, it, I won't say there's not situations I, I would have been a little more comfortable um, and or that I'm against it I, 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 from a defensive standpoint, no question. Um, if you're talking about non-sworn uh, medical personnel, not sworn law enforcement, um, you know, my personal opinions... I'll keep to myself, but in general, I think there's certainly a good argument for with appropriate training, with appropriate buy-in on both the law enforcement and the uh, EMS administrative sides. Um, and I think a lot of places, that's actually going to be your bigger challenge, right? Law enforcement's comfortable with guns. They get it, right? And especially tactical teams, they're comfortable with, all right, 
you know, at some point there's a use of force continuum where I have to defend myself and my medic who, when you spend the time that you spent, you know, I know that Patrick spent that, that I've spent with these teams, you know, they start looking at you as part of the team and they right. don't, I'll be honest. I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I've never asked. Um, I don't know that our guys would have a huge issue if we had firearms from a defensive standpoint. The other side of it is then you got to get the fire department on board with that too. And that's often in my, you know, not my personal experience, but talking to people around the country, getting the EMS or fire agency on board, it can actually become more of a, of a, uh, of a hurdle than necessarily the law enforcement agency. One, one major goal of the MCHD paramedic podcast, the, the, uh, one commandment is to uh, avoid ruffling feathers. So before we before we wade any further, or, or, or I guess uh, shuffle any further out here on the thin ice in uh, Conroe today, I think that's a good good spot to wrap us up. I really really appreciate Patrick for joining us and putting the questions together here to save me from uh, looking like uh, a tactical dummy that I am. Uh, uh, Dr. Schultz's uh, second time joining us on the podcast. Awesome as always. If you listeners out there have questions or comments or, uh, you know, topics you want us to cover, feel free to send them to the podcast email. Otherwise, thank, thanks everyone for joining us, and we will talk to everyone again soon. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Bert. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.